needs to sit back. The doctor should look at it as soon as possible. It is the way in which we propagate our species. Hi, and welcome to Casual Trek, a Star Trek recap and ranking podcast brought to you by Nerd and Ty and the Grandfather Paradox. I'm Charlie Etheridge Nunn, a writer and a Doctor Who fan. And I'm Miles Reed Lobato, a science fiction writer and an X-Men fan. Do you see what we did there? Ooh. Well, each episode of Casual Trek, we watch stories from three different Star Trek shows. We rank them on a big list of worst to best. We both love Star Trek, but it's far from our first fandom, or even our second. And this makes us the ultimate objective voices on such a task. In this episode, we're having a look at time travel. Great Scott! Time tunnel reference. I, I meant to look up anything about Time Tunnel, just to add in, and I can't... I, I just know, like, the title, The Time Tunnel. Oh, God, we watched a bunch of that when I was a kid. Man, that would have been, like, on BBC Two, and, like, the like the dinner... T- oh, man. Yeah, yeah. I remember that, like, I don't think I saw The Time Tunnel, but I did see a few episodes of The Invaders, and that one Invisible Man show starring David McCallum. Hmm? Who he had to wear like a David McCallan flesh suit to kind of go around do the spy stuff, and then when he had to go invisible, he'd just like pull his the mask like his face off. David McCallum flesh suit is a really interesting band name. It's that's definitely like a post punk band from the nineties, right there. Wow. So this isn't about flesh suits of any kind. Or David McCallum. I don't think he actually ever appeared in Star Trek. Huh. But he did appear in Babylon 5. Well, take that to a Babylon 5 podcast. That said, before we go on about Star Trek, Mars, what non-Star Trek thing have you been enjoying since we last spoke? Um, I have recently been getting my Roger Corman on. To, for, some, for people who are listening to a Star Trek podcast who don't know who Roger Corman is, he is a... Film. He's a filmmaker, been doing movies since like the 50s and 60s, and still producing films today. He's notoriously cheap and penny-pinching, but has had a finger in, in, you know, in helping the careers of um, people like Jack Nicholson, uh, Jonathan Dent, Ron, Ron Howard as director. But I've been recently watching a few of his films, one of which is called The Terror, starring Boris Karloff and a baby-faced Jack Nicholson. Just a few years before he hit the big screen with Easy Rider, Jack Nicholson, formerly known as the writer of the Monkeys movie, Head. Wow. Yeah, um, a film which is only titled, so the tagline could be, This Summer, The Monkeys Will Give You Head. Oh, God. So, isn't it, like, the story behind the film, which is okay, um, is more interesting than the film itself. Roger Corman had just finished shooting uh, The Raven with Boris Karloff, and three days early, instead of going, hey, we could take three days off, 
like, hey, we got done ahead of schedule. Good job, team. He went, I have Boris Karloff contracted for three days, and we still have these set sets, these, these castle sets set up for next three days. Let's make a film. Do we have a script? No, but it's okay. We'll have Boris Karloff walk around a castle set, and we'll just write the film around that. The film is kind of strangely incomprehensible, but it has that kind of enjoyable, like, 1960s low-budget charm. I, I think one of the big problems with low-budget films today is since everything is shot on digital video, mm. the cheapness looks more pronounced. Like, from, say, a film like a Sharknado to a film shot on an iPhone and then edit together in, like, GarageBand. You just slap a film filter in, done. It just looks... Movies today, when they look cheap, they look cheap in an unappealing way. And this is being, you know, clearly shot on film, properly lit, Technicolor sets look gorgeous. You know, Boris Karloff is performing, even though he has no clue what the hell is going on. It just has that wonderful 60s kind of Edgar Allan Poe-esque charm. Nice. Yeah, there is definitely something about older, cheap, terrible movies where... I don't know. Maybe it is just the the fact that they still had to do something rather than go, it's all right, stick camera on, we'll fix the rest of it in post. Yeah. Like you and I, we we grew up in that in that fantastic era of like straight to VHS movies. Mm. And now we're just like, you know, which you can get like your blockbuster or your video box, which were crap. But you could tell that, like, they had to actually pay people. I mean, hopefully. Hopefully. And, and just like, yeah, there's, there's always like a sense of fun and charm, which I really don't get in, a, in a, some low-budget films because, you know, back in the day when it's usually some kind of crappy monster movie, nowadays when we get those kind of low-budget films, it's going to be God's Not Dead 5, Take That, You Heathens. Uh, yes, when Kevin Sorbo needs another... Terrible paycheck. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a fun time. The Roger Corman movie. No, Roger Corman, no, no, not God's not dead. No. No. <laughs> no. So, what non-Star Trek thing have you been enjoying? So, I watched a movie on Christmas with my brother, and a couple of Christmases ago, we watched Shin Godzilla as our Christmas movie. And <laughs> this time... We were looking for something to watch and we weren't sure what to do. And his, while he's a massive Godzilla fan, he's a bit tentative about the American side and about Monarch, which I was saving to watch with him. So we didn't watch that in the end. Instead, we watched a previous recommendation from you, uh, Shin Kamen Rider, which Amazon Prime in the UK has called Shin Masked Rider instead because they're cowards. And... I've not followed anything about Kamen Rider ever. I'm aware it exists. I've kind of smiled and nodded along when you've talked about it. And when other podcasts like War Rocket Ajax talk a bit about that kind of thing, it's like, yeah, sure. Like the Super Sentai thing I've never really paid attention to. But my word, that was a film. It is indeed a movie. Mm. We started it and the takeout we ordered arrived, so I quickly paused it. And when I start when I press play again, have I skipped ahead? Like what's this goes into the action pretty much immediately. And then like, yes, we've got 
this guy who we've spliced with grasshopper genes. Okay, right, great. We've got these four enemies who are all insect themed. The first is a bat. Hang on. What? And it's a bat who looks like a plantation owner. No, no, the first one is a spider. Oh, God, yeah, there's a spider. Sorry, the second one's a bat. It's a bat. There's um, there's the Spider-Man, and then there's the Batman. Yeah, yeah. That first one, we were like, okay, so this one's a spider and there are others. What's it going to be? And then the bat threw all of it out because we kept guessing insects. So, yeah, now I've got no clue, but I kind of hope shark. And no, sadly, there wasn't a shark one, but it was one of those films where it's it's just so fascinating and kind of crazy with it. And of course, there are secret other orgs as well, like half mantis, half chameleon org. We're like, right, that's a thing now. You can do half and half. Sure. Why not? It was it was berserk in the best ways. And it it was weird. It made sense in its own world, even though it kept throwing weird things at you, the audience, which I assume people that have seen previous Kamen Rider things might go, oh, that's a thing. Yeah. But wow, what a, what an experience to go into cold. <laughs> it's a very loose adaptation of the original TV show, and the original manga based on the t- based on the TV show. So there's a lot of stuff which you know you you kind of have to pick up from like cultural con- like cultural context. Like like the fact that a second what like a second Kamen Rider turns up midway through the film as a bad guy and then is a good guy immediately because the actor for the first Kamen Rider was doing his own stunts and broke his leg Ooh. around about episode seven. So he's a stunt double in for like in, for next five episodes, and then they bring in a new they bring in a new character who also got turned into a grasshopper themed cyborg by the same evil organization. But again, like with the first guy, they didn't think to do the brainwashing first. Oh. He gets turned into a cyborg. But they forget to do the they do the brainwashing after they built him into the into the super powerful cyborg, and he gets out, and then he becomes common rider. While the other guy is basically, oh, he's fighting Shocker across the world. He'll come back when physiotherapy's done, and so he does. And basically, it's a show because one of the things from the original show, which I don't have in the film, is that Shocker is comprised of former Nazis. Oh, so it's a show when Nazis get kicked so hard they explode, thus making it one of the best TV shows of all time. Well, yeah. Uh, it has a... It's 70s, but it has that 60s Batman kind of camp charm of just like, yeah, we're just gonna do this. I mean, like the whole concept of going, this guy made a computer, like an AI, that he hoped would be perfect, and then he made one that was better and said make make the world better like make the largest amount of people happy i'm sure there are no problems with this statement and kills himself and again we're like what what and apparently the plan is yeah get these you know wasp org spider org and each like why well they'll brainstorm and come up with some idea to you know trolley problem solve the world 
and go, well, if I brainwash everyone, everyone's going to be happy because I'll tell them they're happy. Or I'm going to just release a virus that's going to kill a bunch of people. Or I'm going to put all of humanity in a kind of eternal hell. That one I'm less sure of. But yeah, this this place that I think's fine, but is kind of forever hell for everyone. It it was an interesting one. So yeah, it's a it's a fun film. Um, we were expecting it to have to be so bloody so quickly. Mm. Like when like in the opening fight scene, like I went with a friend of the show Celeste and my wonderful wife and. Uh, she wasn't prepared for quite literally people exploding in the first 30 seconds. My word, people got wrecked in this film. Honestly, kind of awesome. Yes. Because like it's it's that thing you know you know Marvel and DC are never going to kind of fully commit on. Yeah. I watched it with my brother and we went to my dad's for New Year and it was difficult not going, we're just going to watch this now. Because if I'd seen it alone. I would have to have shown them. Uh, so I've, rec- I've left it with them as a recommendation. And then we had, we watched a terrible film because my dad loves a terrible film. And whenever we're indecisive, it's like, right, we're watching Extraction now. And Extraction's a bad film. But there's a lot of violence against children. So if you if you want to watch Chris Hemsworth, like, wreck a bunch of kids in a warehouse, that's, like, his character, Extraction, is just brutal to them. Wait, wait, is is that his name? Like, Bob Extraction? We decided that's his name. Okay. Like, the guy from Die Hard, you know, John, is it John McCain? In, uh, not John McCain. <laughs> McClane. John McClane. Like, he's just, die- after that first film, he's just called Die Hard now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like it's a, a Kojima game, and the character's called Die Hardman. Oh, Kojima. Oh, man, we've, we've, we have yet to do our Death Stranding episode. Yeah, next time that we don't prepare anything in time, you're going to get a Death Stranding episode. So uh, brace yourselves. But yeah, like Shin Kamen Rider is, if I was 50, if I'd seen this one at 15, I would then force this one like all my friends. Mm-hmm. Like when I saw Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai for the first time, when I was 16, I was like, okay, all my friends like, okay, you have to watch this film. It makes no goddamn sense. And it's amazing. Yeah. Huh. Well... On that note, we have some Star Trek to talk about, and we're going all over time. So, um, if we start off with a return to the animated series, which we've not we've not covered in a little while, there's no. not much of it, so we've been trying to be sparing with it a bit. But yeah, this time it's uh, season one, episode two, titled "Yesteryear." It aired on the 15th of September 1973, written by Detective Comics Fontana, directed by Hal Sutherland. Uh, the UK number one hit was Donny Osmond with Young Love, and the US number one hit was Helen Reddy with Delta Dawn. I didn't care for either of these. Donny Osmond was, I think, my... That and Mark Bolan were my mum's two kind of like teenage music crushes. Wow. It was hard to just wrap my head around like the Donny Osmond song and not think of my mum as a teeny bopper, for which I kind of needed a, a gratuitous amount of therapy afterwards. And the other one, it's like Delta Dawn. Sounds like a Tom Clancy novel. It's 
Yeah, although it sounds like something that would play over the end credits of a Righteous Gemstones episode. Or it, it sounds like a film that would star Steven... Se- well, okay, starring Steven Seagal sounds generous. But he'd stand in. The camera would be pointed at Steven Seagal while he pretends to do martial arts moves and pledges undying support for Vladimir Putin. Yeah, the kind of thing you'd see for a pound in a, a rack in a petrol station spa. Or rent in the 90s on VHS from a blockbuster video. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, Miles, tell us, please, what this is about. How much time do I have? Because what do we do for the animated episodes again? It's been so long now. I think we were aiming for two and a half. I mean, were we? I don't know. I think we tried to start at two and a half and rambled on anyway. Let's try for free. Let's try for free, yeah. Why not? Okay, so, uh, go. Right, the Guardian of Forever is a big time-traveling clamshell on a planet. It's from an episode we haven't seen yet, but it's like one of the really big popular ones for Star Trek. Anyway, for scientific purposes, Kirk and Spock went back in time to see Orion in its early days, and Kirk and Spock travel back to the present day, and McCoy's like, who the hell is this Spock character? Kirk just assumes that, McCoy's being a dick as usual, and they beam up back to the ship, and it turns out, oh wait, Spock doesn't exist. Instead, there is this um Andorian guy called uh, Felon, who was actually Kirk's first officer. Oh no, they butterfly affected something. Oh no. Turns out, um, Spock died as a child um, on Vulcan, and so never made it to Starfleet, and Amanda is dead too, and I guess Sarek is just really sad. So Spock's like, well, um, looks like we broke time. We should go back in time. Huh. This remind this, this is seems close to this period of time when I went out and um nearly got killed in the wastelands, and my cousin, who I never saw again, saved me. In fact, he kind of looks like this guy I'm looking at in the mi- Oh wait. It's a time paradox. So Spock gets into his best Vulcan robes, leaps into the time vortex to put right. What once went wrong, quantum leap style. He arrives on Vulcan in the past to a city which looks like a giant nipple. Hmm. Uh, he goes there to see young baby Spock wearing his best um, bondage harness for kids. Yeah, it's it's very inappropriate, that. Being bullied by other freaky misshapen Vulcan children um, who are teasing him for being half-human. Spock meets um, his mum, Amanda, and his dad, Sarek, and claims to be their cousin, Selick, from the town of Magnum P.I. Okay, he doesn't, but he uses the name Selick. So he he, um, he he kind of just scouts around, and he finds that, that Spock is going to go on an ancient Vulcan, uh, one of those kind of training rituals that he has to live in the desert by logic and strength alone. And Sarek being winning, once again, Father of the Year award, says to baby Spock, now Spock, you're going to do this because otherwise you'll bring shame on the family because of your half-humanness. And Spock at no point goes, what about my other brother and my foster human sister, Michael? And Sarah goes, don't talk about them. They're locked in the cupboard right now. Be thankful I haven't eaten them like my first son, Jibble. Oh, well... That's three whole minutes. And yeah, I, I did wonder, 
it was that thing of yeah you've you've not brought up the others are they out in the desert still all right okay let's let's wrap this up Inspired by Sarek's fantastic parental skills, uh, Baby Spock rushed to, decides to do his ritual test early and almost immediately gets killed by a giant lizard. But thankfully, Spock's giant pet, Aichaya, a Salat, gets in the way and is grievously wounded. Adult Spock, realizing that this might be where the divergence in time occurred, followed Baby Spock and takes out the lizard monster with a Vulcan nerve pinch. But Aichaya is grievously wounded because the, the, the lizard monster has a poisonous bite. Um, adult Spock goes, okay, baby Spock, you need to go to a vet right now. I'll stay here. And baby Spock books it, books it to the uh, the healer um, who comes out. And adult Spock is confused because he doesn't remember Aichaya dying at this point in time, but does what he can to make sure that his beloved pet's pain is lessened. The healer arrives and tells Baby Spock, Aichaya could live, but will live in tremendous pain and agony, or you can choose to put him down now and give him some dignity. And Baby Spock makes a decision to let Aichaya pass peacefully. And so everything's fine. Time is going to resume its course and... Baby Spock is now fully dedicated to pursuing a Vulcan way of life. But don't worry, Adult Spock taught him the Vulcan nerve pinch. So now Baby Spock is going to um, teach his bullies and hopefully not become the bully himself. Time is preserved! Hooray! Hooray! And only one giant furry teddy bear with claws and fangs had to die to preserve the timeline. Credit! Okay, that was two minutes and 12 over. And um, Kirk and Spock were not the only people that were just diving into the Guardian of Forever and going, hey, show us history. There was a science team. Do you reckon they were like taking turns going, no, no we can't mess with time, but let's just let's just have a look. Let's have a play. Look, we have this we have this Guardian of Forever. It would be a shame not to use the Guardian of Forever. Just saying. Yeah, exactly. It's probably responsible, right? So, yeah, as long as we don't do too many bad things. Like, it's not as if, like, the the first time we encountered this thing, um, Hitler won World War Two. Yeah, I I can see why the time police weren't thrilled about Kirk. Yeah. Really. Yeah, it's interesting seeing how cavalierly they deal with time travel in this. Because we're obviously in like hyper-media-aware, irony-poisoned, meta-commentary-poison kind of worlds where anytime there's time travel stuff, we've seen it so many times, but you're going to have to get really creative with it or do something interesting. Here it's like, yeah, fuck it, go through the portal. They have 25, like 25, 23 minutes to fill instead of like a 45 to 50-minute script, which means you kind of have to fudge a lot of the details to get to the meat and bones of the story. Yeah, I, I don't think I expected it when it started to be a Spock episode where he's sent out on his own into the desert to of Vulcan to help his kid self. Because it seemed like it was going to be, okay, Kirk and Spock go back in time and shenanigans ensue, but they've kind of done that already by the time that we start. 
yeah, it was interesting to see that. And um, yeah, also with Kirk, I loved how quickly he just went, oh, fuck it, that cousin's you. So yeah, no suspense about it. Yeah. Like in in a longer show, maybe they'd have gone, oh, who was that man? Well, we'd better go. Maybe they interfered with it and Spock had later go, oh, shit, no, it's me. Oh, I was that person. And at least you know you can't fuck up the timeline too badly if you've already futzed with the timeline that made your timeline that you're currently in. But that that's the, the that's the whole very nature that's the whole nature of the grandfather paradox. Yeah. Which is why it's something awful at the beginning of our episode. Because if he doesn't go back in time and change the timeline originally, then Spock dies, so he goes back in time, but then he won't go back in time and so on and so forth. It, at least at least he didn't accidentally make his mum fall in love with him. Yes. Yeah, there is that. We're looking at you, McFly. Question for you: If you could go, if you could go back in time, mm-hmm. what would you impart on your younger self? So to make fi- to make things either more complicated or easier. See, more complicated would almost be fun in that level of like self destruction. The obvious one is is going to eleven year old me. By the way, you've got a spinal tumor. You might want to get that sorted out rather than wait four years for it to get diagnosed. But telling, again, me from around that time to get a haircut, I kept trying to make long hair happen. Um, I kept it short. I cut it short in my first secondary school because uh, people would pull on it or try and set light to it. And the moment I left, I was like, yes, fuck yeah, I can grow my hair long. I don't remember why I wanted this. And... When I finally got it all cut off before going to university, the hairdresser was like, the problem is the direction of your hair is going entirely the wrong way for what you're trying to do. And the build of it is a bit too, like, a bit too dry, or kind of just a, a magnet for split ends. So being able to go, don't make the long hair happen. It's fine. And yeah, I think that would be a, a net positive. Try and make fetch happen. Don't go long hair. Try and make fetch happen instead. Yeah, I think I was trying to be like Ken from Street Fighter too, but my head wouldn't. My hair's not even the right color for that. No, no, God, no! You should have gone for guile. Oh wow! I mean, yeah, that that'd suit the direction the hair comes out of my head. Actually, just somehow find a way to, in real world terms, get that weird broom head. I've actually been, for me, I've actually been thinking about this. Okay. Okay. Despite the fact that I am the gigantic um, flippant snark magnet that you see today, I was actually like the quiet kid at school. Really? Yeah. I know. It's terrifying. I love looking off fear in people's faces when they hear that because they're like, oh, dear God, what happened to you? Now you don't shut up. And so I I was bullied a bit, like Spock. Not physically bullied but it was more of a taunting uh because i was just quiet a kid who always liked to put his head in a book i would go back in time and teach my younger self to be a bit more snarkier and sarcastic and a lot and a lot less cavalier about using the word fuck i would probably get punched more yeah but but you know what at least I would be, I, I don't know, I think if I was as sarcastic and um, 
as much of a smart ass now as you know at 15 or 14 as i am now i i think i may have come out of school a bit better ah okay so back to yesteryear yeah it was interesting seeing um like the enterprise apparently has a wardrobe department like, what would life be like on that? I, I want to see the Enterprise wardrobe department. There. I, I think they've had a few episodes when... I, I think I've seen an episode when they beam down to a planet wearing, like, oldie-timey clothes. Yeah. Because it's one of those planets where people wear oldie-timey clothes. Um, so, I like, I think in the Strange New Worlds pilot, they just beamed down and just had their clothes turned it be nonsense, which seems a bit more advanced than this. But yeah, you, you got to assume that like they have like you know, given how much like next gen is into Amdram, mm. maybe it's the same on like on TOS, but we just never see it. Yeah, because they have they have a room for performing plays. We see it in the context of the King, so maybe they just have like a very vigorous Amdram department, but. We don't see it because Kirk is too serious for Amdram. And um, after Spock's one-man show of Vincent Van Gogh, um, he's been told, no, never again. Yeah. Given the track record from the original series, the wardrobe department would have like, oh, is it Romans again this time? That's all right. We've got some Roman outfits for you. Cowboys? Okay, yeah, yeah, we got cowboy outfits. That's all right. I want to do like a cowboy Roman toga fusion? Yeah. I mean, at least there's that compared to DS9 where it feels a bit like we've got some scraps and we've sewn them together. Like we've got some colourful bits of clothing that we're stitching in interesting new patterns. I, I, I was going to say maybe it's like Spock's from hit, but I was like, no, Spock doesn't exist in this timeline. Mm. So it's not just like Spock's casual Friday get up. Yeah. I did get some weird, like, He-Man vibes from those kids' outfits. That was weird. Well, Filmation did do He-Man. Well, we'll go on to do He-Man in about a decade's time. Yeah. Oh, God, so maybe they reused these. Didn't the really limited animation give it away? <laughs> true, true, yeah. I, um, yeah, because this is episode two as well, so they're still getting used to it all. Yeah, it was it was charming and it was nice seeing um I remember hearing talk of the the giant weird saber toothed tiger pets that Vulcans had and hearing like, oh yeah, you actually see that in the cartoon. It's like, oh, there, there it is. Okay, and yeah, I did not expect the pet to get put down. Like not in the kids' cartoon version of Star Trek. Apparently, NBC were kind of iffy on that because they're worried about complaints from parental groups. But, like, they got no complaints, and it's tastefully done. Yeah, yeah. It's well handled. I like that. I'm surprised you haven't brought up the um, infamous pet euthanasia episode of Del Grassi. Because I swear when I talk to you, there is a Del Grassi episode for everything. I'm trying to think now. There... I don't know. The problem is the torment tends to be like child based rather than animal based. You know, I'm surprised I wasn't like, I don't know, a tiger let loose in Degrassi itself or anything like that. But um, yeah, maybe one day, you know, sadly, the HBO purchase of it 
has, of course, been allowed to die on the vine uh, like anything else for HBO Max, whatever they're doing. Very sad. Um, yeah, the other thing I, I saw with this is James Doohan got seven different roles in on this one, which is fascinating to see because I get that they reused actors to save on money for the animated series. And it's a way of allowing yourself to have multiple characters. So he was Scotty. He was the Guardian of Forever. He was Thelen, the alternate timeline Andorian uh, second in command. Ericsson, who was the guy that everyone just kept forgetting was there. Like he went through the portal with Kirk and Spock. He's experiencing this timeline and Kirk and Spock keep talking like he's not there in the room and can't hear them. It's like, oh no, only us two can remember your your existence, Spock. Maybe Ericsson was also like they changed the timeline for Ericsson, but since Kirk doesn't give a shit about Ericsson, he's just yeah. like and Ericsson's dead. I'm still... And Ericsson's dead. At this point, this is years after the original series. So he's got kind of numb to red shirts dying or existing, apparently. Yeah, he also played Bates. He played Alik On, which was the bird scientist. And the unnamed Vulcan healer. Yeah, the bird person looked kind of cool. And was another one of those, you couldn't really do this outside of the animated show. I was kind of surprised that the uh, the lizard monster mm. is played by Godzilla. Oh, that's about. Like the roar, that's the Godzilla roar. So it was like, clearly they had some money to get Godzilla into the studio to record a very impressive, I didn't know Godzilla was a Trekkie. He's a busy man as well. So Perhaps know. he was like, yeah, I'll just do this for scale. Yeah. No pun intended. Good, good work there. Like this was a fairly light breezy one. Had some fun bits, but we are going to need to put it somewhere on our big list of best to worst. Now is standing at 84 entries, going all the way from Star Trek to The Wrath of Khan at the very top to Data Law from TNG around the halfway point, and then Lift Us Where Suffering Cannot Reach right down at the bottom. This episode was also about child death, but you know what happened? Mm. Kirk and Spock put a stop to it. They they figured it out. Yeah. Yeah, admittedly, time would have been a bit wrecked otherwise. Like, we've not had a massive amount of animated showings, and this was... It was fine, you know? It was good fun. I think, just looking at the list, we've got Infinite Vulcan at 29, and that was one where you got a giant robot Spock duplicate and weird corkscrew bats. And it, it was so bonkers. It's it's earned its place that high up on our list. So I don't think it's beaten that. Trying to see what else, what would be comparable quality-wise to this. You know, we've got stuff like the Man Trap down in place number 50. Yeah, Bones' X is after everyone's salt. That was good fun. We've got Captive Pursuit, which also has a which also has a very dangerous lizard. Yes. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. That. It's one of those ones where sometimes I look at this list and go, "Is that higher than it needs be?" But I don't know. There were some fun bits in that, so it's probably probably fine where it is. We've got um at number fifty three. We have the game. Oh, I think I think the game's probably better than this. 
Like it's it, it's a little preachier. It's also an entertaining episode, you know. Let's see. There's quality of mercy from Strange New Worlds. A couple of bits below that, with Pike trying to do Balance of Terror better and kind of fucking it up a bit. That's another one where, um, which is about like something horrendous happened in Spock and time travel being involved. Hmm. But like that one, it's more like Spock has a a very important destiny, and this one is very much just like, yeah, um, we accidentally erased Spock from existence somehow. We should um go back and fix it. <laughs> we we accidentally erased Spock and Erickson from existence. Let's just do Spock. We only have time for one. Let's save Spock. God, I don't know. I think Quality of Mercy is probably a bit better. But is this better than uh, the first episode of Season 3 of Picard, the next generation where we're getting the band back together? Oh! Eventually. Eventually. See, if they got all of the band back together, I would say, no, that would be better. Um, like it's, it's such a difficult one with that season and that episode of Picard. Because, yeah, it's like, oh, oh, there's some promise. There's some potential. Does much happen? Not no, really. no. Hmm. There's, there's prestige drama padding. Yeah. So, do you want to say that Yes Year is our new number 56? Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. So, next up, we have Star Trek Voyager with Season 1, Episode 4, titled Time and Again. This aired on the 30th of January, 1995. The teleplay was by David Kemper and Michael Piller. The story by David Kemper, directed by Les Landau. The UK number one hit was Rednecks with Cotton Eye Joe. And the US <laughs> number one hit was TLC with Creep. I was not expecting one of these songs to... Uh, <laughs> because I didn't know it was a real song. What? I just... I only know Cotton Eye Joe... From the meme, which was on 4chan, the, the one with Snape, you know, back when everyone liked Harry Potter. I just know it from this one particular meme. I never really bothered with Harry Potter, so... I, I didn't, but, like, I, I knew too many people who spent time on 4chan. Oh, no. So it just it just was a meme, was, like, a very popular meme for a while. Okay. And then there's a slow cover of it in Swiss Army Man. The, the film which stars Daniel Radcliffe as a farting corpse. Of course. Yes. Um, a friend of mine does a podcast called Inform, Educate, Entertain, which is a kind of fake radio for panel show uh, with himself and some stand-up comedian friends of his. And their Christmas episode had adverts, like fake adverts in between each segment, each of which had kind of slow slightly wistful versions of of tracks in the background one of which was cotton eye joe and i was in public when i heard that and it was so difficult not to corpse it was so so horrifically well done what an earworm i was let's see 95 i wasn't yet working at a comic shop when that came out but it was on the radio so much at that point you know there's a there's a certain amount of ironic enjoyment of it now that i'm i'm this far removed from it all but yeah back at the time i i did not care for it and creep creep creep's all right 
I, I like TLC. It's not one of the ones of theirs that that comes to mind when I I think of them right away. But yeah, it's all right. Yeah, were you a big TLC head? No, like I I really missed a lot of music of this period because I was not listening to music. Ah. Like I've said, the very first CD I ever bought with my own money was the soundtrack to Twin Peaks, which kind of gives away the kind of pretentious loser I was at, you know, in the 90s. Wow. Again, just waiting for time-traveling Miles to slap that out of his hand. My, my brother got a CD player first out of the two of us, and I think it was a TLC album that was his first CD. Um, so, yeah, we heard a, a good bit of that. Okay, so quick question mm. before we get on to the episode. If you could go back in time and give 1995 era Charlie any one album, what would it be? Oh, fuck, that's, that's a difficult one. Like, at that point, I was discovering kind of my love of the Britpop sort of thing. I had a bunch of Tom Waits and Talking Heads. Mm. Uh, once I started getting CDs, I was all into garbage. It's like... I'd, I don't know if there's anything I'd go back and sling at me. Maybe, I don't know, maybe some of the things, some of the like rockier bits and pieces that I just never heard. It's an odd one. Because even with stuff like Nirvana, my cousin Ben was a music reviewer and just gave me his copy of Nevermind after he'd done reviewing it. Mm. Was he for, for the enemy? No, no. I think it was some Isle of White music. So, yeah, I don't know if I would. No. No, my music taste is perfect. Uh, No, it's it's not. It's not. It's just, yeah, wide enough for. I'm not sure what I'd what what I'd want. It'd probably be something pretentious. Okay, I I can just imagine you going back in time and giving your younger your younger self um, the mountain goats all hail West Texas. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would definitely work for me. Anyway. It's my turn to recap now with uh, yes, it is. Voyager episode. So, Charlie, can you surmise this episode of Voyager in five minutes? Probably not, but I'll give it a go. Good on you. All right. Let's voyage. Yeah, so Voyager's passing a red dwarf. Yeah, like the show. Paris is trying to get harry kim on a double date with the delaney sisters but no harry's got a girlfriend back home in space canada the ship shakes startling everyone and waking up kess uh there's a wave of debris by the red dwarf the voyager decides to have a look determine where it came from and it was an m-class planet everyone there's dead and there are signs that there was civilization so hey time to poke around some bodies Janeway, Tuvok, Paris and Torres go to the planet and it's a real mess. Apparently the surface was ignited, incinerating everything organic that was there. On the ship, Kess is inconsolable. Somehow she saw the devastation in her mind. She reckons that her ancestors had mind powers and this might be those manifesting. Neelix is not supportive of this theory at all. Doesn't really believe it's a thing. Paris finds a a kind of old timepiece and gets a vision of the past. He tells everyone he's done this and then has a longer vision as well. 
turns out there are kind of weird pockets of time in this place and walking around could be bad so time to beam away but when they do Joan and paris get trapped in the past where they freak out a small child oh no they try and play along and gaslight the child into believing they're actual alien they're actually part of this society doesn't work on the kid but it does on the space filth uh, Paris sees the clock that he saw earlier and calculates, oh no, this is only a day before the end of the world. Voyager is trying to find them back in the present and explains they're stuck in a kind of narrow end of a time funnel and they need to find where they're at and bring them back. But everyone's pretty new to the roles here. They're not quite used to technobabble, but they are giving it some effort. The Doctor scans Kess's brain and is a bit confused about new arrivals on Voyager. And Neelix and Kess have to break him the bad news that like half the crew are new arrivals from the Marquis and no one told him. He demands to speak for manager, but sadly she's not available as she's trapped in yesterday. Janeway and Paris don some disguises to fit in. And Janeway says they can't interfere with the timeline. So this society must get destroyed somehow. The annoying child stops them briefly and the pair look into interference with polaric energy and see a plant where the space filth are attacking protesters. Back in the present, Torres is using a polaric energy emitter to open a rift. She just needs to find Janeway in Paris and do that there. It's quite resource intensive, so they've not got many chances. And Kess insists on going along to help them. Those protesters take in Janeway and Paris. Uh, two of them, Pinar and Nye, grill them for information and mention the pair have a lot of polaric radiation, kind of like they were either working in the plant or were in some massive disaster. Kess senses them and Harry finds a destroyed combat, which is a bit of a bad sign, but Tuvok's pretty confident Janeway knows what she's doing and it'll be fine. Back in the past, Resistance guys catch the kid as well, who feels really vindicated that it turns out Janeway and Paris are suspicious, but also he's a captive now. So, you know, take that kid. Janeway realises, yeah, we're going to have to interfere with the timeline because we may have caused the disaster. Torres' device is activated, and when Chakotay tries to communicate to Janeway, the combadges are snatched away as the Resistance think that, oh no, these are spying devices. They try and get Janeway to let them into the plant. And of course, she doesn't work there. She's nothing to do with it. And she immediately tells the guards on the door, hey, we've been kidnapped. These guys want to mess with your plant. And a fight breaks loose. Paris gets shot. Janeway leaves him with the kid while she chases resistance fighters down to a hallway where they're kind of bickering about what to do with the terminal. She points a gun at them and says, hey, you know, stop doing all this. And they say, no, no, the place is so filled with polaric energy. If you shoot that gun, you're going to blow everything up. And just to make things even more volatile, a time portal opens. Yes, the crew in the present have found where they were at this point and try to rescue them. The only problem is that rescue attempt is what killed the planet. Ah, boom. Time paradox. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Go. Okay. Yeah. So Janeway realizes that rescue attempt, the time rift, doing this around all the polaric energy is what killed the planet. She shoots her phaser at the portal, 
they turn up the power on it, not realizing what's going on. Uh, but she shoots it even more, eventually blowing it up without blowing the plant and the polaric energy up. There's a slow motion explosion and time resets. We're back in the cold open. There's a red dwarf. Yes, like the TV show. Paris is trying to get Harry Kim to go on a double date with the Delaney sisters. And they've found an M-class planet. But there are people on it. And they're pre-warp, so it's best not to interfere. Kess has been woken up by a troubling vision. But she gets shown the planet on the view screen and it's all fine. Everything's fine. Unless you're Harry Kim, who's getting dragged away for a double date with the Delaney sisters. One minute and six seconds. Okay, not as bad as I thought I'd be with that. Um, yeah, so given how early this is in the show, this feels like Janeway's first, ah, fuck it, let's, let's mess with the timeline. It's fine. Like, who's going to stop her? I mean, time police eventually. Time police will have some words with her the, about The Department this. of Temporal Investigations. Yes. What is it? Dulmer and Luxley? Yep. God, I'm shocked that I remember those names. But yeah. But the, aren't they anagrams of Mulder and Scully? They are. They are entirely anagrams of Mulder and <laughs> so, Scully. So, so look, believe me, given how attractive Gillian Anderson has always been, mm. I don't blame you. Fair. Okay, so yeah, um, it was an interesting one seeing the mechanics of having to fix things a day ago um, and how quickly this world just incinerated. I mean, this is technically time travel. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's just, yeah, weird little time quakes that they had to go through. And um, maybe, maybe they could have left a note and say, this polaric energy you might want to do something about it because it could incinerate, I don't know, like an entire world. Problem is that non-interference from the Prime Directive is different for non-interference with time travel, evidently. The outfits the, the people of the planet are wearing... Oh, my God. They look like Burger King uniforms. They're incredible. Uh, this is another one of those... Like, people willingly dressed like this? Like, what happened in their society to make it look like that? Polaric energy, clearly. Duh. Apparently so. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, what do you reckon happened in the default timeline? Well, the new default timeline where everything got fixed and a time rift didn't blow up the power station. I don't know. They blew themselves up a week later. Maybe. Like, that's the thing. Like, that the resistance fighters wouldn't possibly wouldn't rush their infiltration of the base, so maybe maybe they'll actually shut it down. You know, I'd hope to think that, but yeah, they, for all we know, a week later it blew up because I don't know a bird shat on it or something. You know, it seems very sensitive. Man, we're, this is we're clearly in that um, time period of protesters are the bad guys. Oh my god, I I yeah, I had concerns. When I saw the uh, the space filth attacking protesters, I was like, yeah, that's this is nineteen ninety-five. You're not going to be pro the protesters here, are you? No. When was when was Rodney King? Oh, oh God. I mean my, my American history is not the best. Um that was 
1992. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Mm. So, like, you know, they, they're they very clearly, like, you know, the... Well, well-intentioned, but terrible means kind of resistance. It, it is that very much that kind of neoliberal of they want to do something, therefore bad. Yeah, kind of. Like, I don't know. To be a bit more merciful to it, I don't think it was as universally oh yeah these guys are just out and out bad yeah they're not very organized and they're not great at this but they the intent behind what they're doing was was fine it the polaric energy is destroying incredibly volatile and could destroy everything evidently we've seen that's the case but they weren't completely villains they just weren't great you know and they were rightfully suspicious of these complete time-travelling aliens popping down and go and sowing a load of quite bad lies. You, you, you think that Starfleet Academy would cover this? Like, they're, they're, like, okay, you know, I get the feeling like time travel isn't really an accepted thing in, um, in, in TOS because whenever they, they do time travel, it is kind of seen as a novelty. Kind of, although... We've literally just seen an episode where there's a, fe a Federation science team just slinging people through a time portal for for fun. Go like, yeah, let's do some research in in the Guardian of Forever. You go. Yeah. Meanwhile, like we have like thirty years or so, like actually no, seventy, eighty years. I can't remember because this is casual trek. Mm. You you think they'll be like, okay, if you go back in time, don't do this. Yes. Yeah, I mean, maybe they've got a bit more secure in it now, and going, yeah, maybe, maybe that was a bad idea. Remember when we erased Spock from the timeline temporarily? Okay, let's let's not do that. What about that other guy? What about that other guy? There was another guy. There was another guy. Huh. Huh. Um, yeah. In a way, this feels almost like the opposite of that kind of Spock was always predestined to find child spock and save him this is you know it feels predestined that this place is gonna die and you get some moments of like wistfully looking at some kids playing knowing that this is going to get kind of obliterated soon tom paris clearly dies in this alternate timeline yes yeah definitely pa paris bleeds out but it's okay because you know we're, we're gonna we're gonna hit the magic time reset button yeah and there's another paris you know, all right and better and pestering uh, Harry Kim about the Delaney's. So, the most important question I have to ask about this episode. No, I, d I still don't believe Harry Kim has a girlfriend back on Earth. Okay, no, that wasn't it. How badly do you think Harry Kim struck out with a Delaney's sister? I mean, he was literally just brought along because uh, the Delaney's require there to be two people. Like that, That's kind of weird it is i don't know if i'd be comfortable double dating with my brother really i i don't think i'd be comfortable well, okay i would not be comfortable double dating with my sister-in-law these days no no, um, no. like i i don't know like if you had siblings if they want if they had to date as a pair i'm like i no no it's a bit weird yeah i'm pretty sure the twins i i knew back in the day weren't like that like I also was like, do do you want to have your have like both sisters like 
stationed to the same are they Siamese twins? Maybe. Is this are they conjoined twins? Is is this how this works? This because then that, that leads to a whole new cake of um of concerns. Yeah, I mean that would force a double date to be necessary, but there would be a lot more questions. Yeah. Yeah. Like, hey, as long as everyone's consenting. Yeah, yeah, then fine. Um or, or maybe it's just because, you know, Tom Paris has you know, Tom Paris is Tom Paris. So bring a second person along, just you know. Keep safe around uh, weird guys that want to be a Riker of the show. Maybe like Tom Paris said, oh, it's okay. I have a brother and um, has just passed off Harry as his twin brother. Oh, dear. Tim Tim Paris. Of course. (laughs) Yeah, important, important business in this this Voyager episode. Um. Yeah, like this is early enough Voyager that it's it's not quite got into itself yet. I loved the Doctor meeting Kess and Neelix and being like, "Yeah, these are unique things. I've not seen them before. What could someone have told me about this?" Uh, he's less he's less a person. Like at this point, he knows he's a computer program and he's still pissed off. He he's still pompous. But it's very much a okay. I'm the chief medical officer. I am not getting. Um, I am not getting added in to the uh, the daily management memos. Hmm. Yeah, I did try and remember because we've seen the pilot, and now we've seen this as far as the first tranche of episodes of Voyager. And I was sure that he'd at least seen uh, Kess and Neelix at some point, but maybe not. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, maybe he, maybe he did, but at some point, but that also got erased from time. Yeah, I mean, it's so, what so, eighty four things on our list to go, roughly. Like, maybe like this is the first week. Yeah, we're on episode four, so maybe like we're just a weekend to Voyager. Yeah, and they've rewritten the timeline already, which is you know showing, showing good respect for the Delta Quadrant and time, which <laughs> which good on them. Yeah. Okay, do you remember like way back in episode one when I said, "Hey, isn't it kind of interesting?" Like the 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 Delta Quadrant is like this post collapse area of space where everything's kind of like dilapidated and just God, was I wrong? Because <laughs> we have like a civilization, we have like a pre warp civilization already. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they seem like aside from the protests the, and the fashion the volatile plant, the fashion, weird ass looking clocks, all of that, they seem to be doing all right for themselves. Like they're yeah. fairly advanced for a pre warp civilization. Like and, and the Kazon haven't attacked them, so I guess like the Kazon have a weird prime directive. Maybe. Maybe they've just not got round to it yet. Maybe they're like, oh, no, if you shout too loudly near that plant, it's going to go off. Like, what can we do about that? Like, let's let's not bother with it. Maybe the Kazon just went down, saw their outfits, went, there is nothing here worth stealing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what are you going to nick? Like, for bad clock, for terrible fashion, and that annoying child. Um, do, you, do you think, like, aliens went down, went down to Earth in, in, like, the 80s or 90s and saw, like, one of those T-shirts which said shirt, 
but it had the R really, really small. So it looked like the, the shirt said shit and went, nah, we'll come back in 100 We're years, done. mate. Yeah, We're done. yeah. That we're good. That was the second time Vulcans uh, infiltrated <laughs> planet Earth. The, the, the Vulcans came in the 80s, um, discovered that Baywatch had been created, and went, nope, this is a this is a failed civilization. <laughs> we'll leave it a while. You know? Um, as far as as far as this episode and our our big list. Like it's I would say it's interesting that we see a time travel episode which is not about Earth or our characters' yes. history. It ju- it's like unfortunately it just kind of feels a bit nothing burger. Yes, yeah, it's it's fine. It's an entertaining trifle. Like if this was just yeah. idly on, I'd be down to watch it. Um, but yeah, I've, I wouldn't have gone out of my way for it. I remember this episode from when I first watched Voyager. Because I remember those fucking shirts. Yeah. And, like, I remember that there's, like, a, oh, we have to stop the explosion from happening. Although, at some point, they have to encounter another civilization getting wiped out in this timeline for Kez to discover she has psychic powers now. Yes. Yeah, that's... I'll be interested to see how that changes things or develops. Or if they just go, cool, we can bench that for a future point and go psychic powers. Kez's psychic powers is like one of the few things they kind of try and do with Kez. Because, mm. like, she's either, if I remember, she's either like with Tuvok or with the doctor as like his nurse. Yeah. For the brief time she's on the show. Or like that, like, horrendous love triangle between Tom, Neelix, and Kez, of which no one comes out looking good. No, no. Uh, again, Tom Paris, leave that child bride alone. Dear, oh dear. Yeah, so so looking at the list, I was looking at, I see, there's stuff like Virtuoso Encoder in spots 59 and 60, and they're entertaining. Like, you've got the weird ghost dad and the fake time loop that happened there. Um, Virtuoso with the AI art. I think it's possibly better than them, but then it's going to, it's got to be worse than Jatrell, which yeah. is tricky to pronounce, but also, you know, shit, Ethan Phillips does some really good acting in it as Neelix. Do, do, you know, do you know which show had better time travel episodes? Oh, Time Tunnel? Red Dwarf. Oh, yes. Yeah, Red like, Dwarf. Like, you know, like, like, the one, like, you know, you, you can't help but mention Red Dwarf and not talk about Red Dwarf. <laughs> what? What is your favorite episode, time travel related episode of Red Dwarf? Is it the one when they can go back in time into photographs and they superimpose Lister into like the Nuremberg rallies and he gets into a fight with Hitler? <laughs> don't talk, listen to him. Don't listen to him. He's a complete total nutter and he's only got one testicle. <laughs> God, and that was backwards as well, where they managed to go back in time to Earth, but it was, but it was reversed. Or um or white hole where time is kind of screwed up and they keep repeating themselves. A white hole. So that thing spewing time back into the universe. Yes, God. Uh, some friends and I online get into loops of that. Even though... oh, say uh, it's been a while, but like some friends of mine from uni 
would do that on Facebook. I think he actually made one of my creative writing teachers, who is now a published author, unfriend. I think that was like one of the final. It was either that hmm. or our occasional games in Mornington Crescent. Oh, dear. Which made him pull the plug on having me li- on his Facebook. <laughs> well, well, you know, getting them to quit uh, Facebook before other people are quitting social media. I enjoyed this episode, but like, there's very little to talk about. Yeah. It's, it's nice to see that the time travel is a day and that it's not Earth. Yes. It's an interesting quandary and that extra suspense of because it's not Earth, because it's here in the middle of nowhere, you're sent one day in the past and you've got a day before everything is destroyed. Good luck. Uh, figure it out. That was a fun puzzle. I-, I think like the best part is like Janeway going, well, we can't actually do anything because of the Prime Directive, so we're just going to wait for the inevitable. And then even that just kind of gets sorted by like 20 minutes in, which is like, yeah, well... You know, I have to be invested now. Like, we've got to get the second half of the show done. Yeah, I mean, she was kind of in the... Uh, let's just hope that our people know know how to deal with this and bring us back. But yeah, it's uh, seeing that immediate kind of thing. And Paris even calls her out on that and going, Oh, I see. We're, we're fucking with time now. And she's like, yeah, I kind of got to, right? We might have made this. It's like, yes. Yeah. Okay, so if we look at a sort of nothingy episode, there's the pilot for Lower Decks Second Contact, which felt a bit underwhelming compared to all of the rest of Lower Decks. That's in spot number 51. Um, Is this better than the game, though? Oh, God. We're back to that. The game feels like the new encounter at Farpoint as a benchmark of, like... I don't know, like the challenge is more interesting in this because you kind of know the beats of the game, but the mechanics of the game are are still quite fun. Yeah, it's also like that's season five and this is season one. So we're still in that everyone is just kind of like the very broad strokes. Again, as I said in the recap, they are trying to do Technobabble. They've not quite got it figured out yet. Yeah. You know, and it's like, it's a difficult art technobabble but um but they're trying yeah i mean i guess well, going down a little from that is this better than yesteryear mm, no <laughs> uh it's i don't know why it always tickles me when an animated series episode's better <laughs> than something here uh given how hokey and how badly made some of them can can end up being okay i mean we're back to the block of voyagers with virtuoso encoder and I think like Coda's interesting, but I feel mechanically it's it's a bit of a mess. Yeah, and Virtuoso is fun. Yeah, yeah. God, are we creating? Are we going to create a bigger block of Voyager now by putting it between the two of them? I I think we might have to. Okay, so that puts it at the new number sixty. Number sixty. Hmm. Yeah, one day I'll I'll bother doing echoey effects for that or trying to remember how like your chart show type things did. So there we go. And finally, for our third episode of the night, we'll be looking at Star Trek Strange New Worlds, season two, episode three, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. 
I think I've got the right amount of tomorrows. Yeah, it's been a while since we've had a Star Trek episode, which is which is a Shakespeare quote. Yeah, although you know, still a fairly common thing. Just uh, yeah, it's been a little while. Uh, this is a fairly recent one, coming from the twenty ninth of June, twenty twenty three. Must say, sadly, we're never going to get a Star Trek episode titled "Villain I Have Done My Mother." We might. You never know. Lower decks might. Oh, that's that's true, actually. And one of the characters is the main character's mother. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, send that to Mike McMahon. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is not by him. It's by David Reed and directed by Amanda Rowe. Uh, the UK and US number one hits are ones we have seen before. Dave and Central Sea with Sprinter and uh, from the UK, and the US had Morgan Wallen with Last Night. Um, I only remembered these as being ones that we'd covered before because they were in the search history and I would not have looked them up intentionally otherwise. Morgan Wallen felt like just standard bro country. First World Problems, the song, it's like, yeah, like I have this girl, but like, do I want to give her my Instagram password? I mean, difficult. And then, yeah, Dave... Dave and Central C was fine. Like, it's not really my thing, but the guitar on it was quite nice. Yes, this modern music is evidently spoiled on me. Yep. So, in the meantime, we are going to Canada. So, uh, Miles, if you're ready, it's time to go back to Canada. Go. Laon Noonien Singh is like she's kind of going through the motions right now um you know she's kind of feeling out of it uh pella the new engineer has been hoarding artifacts because she's um eternal and has been hoarding stuff just in case this whole communist utopia uh, socialist utopia thing doesn't work out stick a pin in that as she's just walking through the corridor um this guy uh, uh, just appears in front of her, says, get to the bridge, passes her a gizmo, and then promptly dies. La'an rushes to the bridge to find out that actually the ship, the Enterprise, is captained by James T. Kirk. Oh. Bit, bit early. Um, turns out she's actually in an alternate timeline where Earth is a wasteland, the Vulcans are at war with the Romulans, and there's no Federation. Kirk is interrogating her, and he accidentally he gets the device, hits it too hard, and transports her, transports them both to um, present-day Toronto, which Kirk immediately thinks is New York. They steal some clothes, and they get some, they get money by hustling at chess. And turns out Kirk is quite a chess hustler. Uh, <laughs> those Canadian hustlers. Laan is trying to work out how to change the future back to her timeline, Kirk is more concerned with hot dogs and sunsets because, you know, um, if Laan gets what she wants, his timeline gets wiped out of existence. So he has no obligation to help her. He finds out that um, Sam, his brother, is actually still alive in, in Laan's timeline. And La Laan finds out that Kirk doesn't recognize her surname. Huh. Everyone recognizes her surname because it's Khan's. They get a hotel and then a bridge in Toronto explodes. And they realize, oh, that's the bridge that the guy meant when he died. They rush there and they meet uh, someone called Sarah, who is a conspiracy buff, who is investigating the explosion. Turns out they've been like these odd terrorist attacks every so often. Uh, Kirk and Sarah see some stuff being bundled into a truck. And do what they do in any game of Grand Theft Auto and nick a car. 
Uh, turns out Kirk is... I was really disappointed that Sabotage by Beastie Boys wasn't playing when Kirk steals a car in this episode, like in the 2009 Star Trek movie. They try and follow the truck, but it, they fail. Um, they meet the Sarah, who shows them photos of aliens which have been sighted, and one of these alien photos is a Romulan bird of prey. <gasps> Say what? Realizing they need an engineer to help them track these these gadgets, um, rem- La'an remembers that Pella, Pelia is in this time and tracks her down. Only Pelia is not an engineer yet. That hasn't happened. Um, she just sells historical knickknacks. Uh, feeling discouraged, they find a way using a 20th century watch and using the material to make the dial glow as a way to track what they need. Kirk and Pelia have a little smooch. Oh, it looks like uh, he's warming up to her. Isn't this nice? Uh, they find the lab they're looking uh, for. Kirk and Laan. Kirk and Laan. Did I say Kirk and Pelia? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, uh, look, it's Kirk, you know. We yeah, all know the stereotype about around. Kirk. Yeah. So Kirk and, and Laan have a little smooch. Aw, and they find the lab they're looking for. And they break in. And they find Sarah, who pulls a gun on them. Turns out she's actually a Romulan time traveler from the future who is trying to prevent Earth from ever really gaining prominence in the future and thus becoming their greatest enemies. Turns out that, like, there's a whole... This keeps happening, that people are changing history, like, pushing back the Third World War and the eugenics wars. There's a whole kind of temporal code Cold War going on. Hmm. Stick a pin in that for Enterprise. Uh, Kirk tries to bluff his way out, but Sarah is into, into bluffing, so she starts blasting, and Kirk dies. And La'an is really sad, and then La'an realizes, oh wait, I know why she's here. This is a genetics lab. And that door says, Khan. Oh no! She's gonna... Oh. Oh no. She is going to grandfather paradox me by killing Khan, thus preventing the whole eugenics wars and maybe World War Three. So... La'an kills Sarah, just just shoots her right there and then. Sarah has a self-destruct uh, button, which disintegrates her, leaving only the fresh scent of pine. Mm. Um, La'an goes into Khan's room, and she finds a little boy who, for once with, uh, with Khan, is actually played by someone of Indian descent. That's nice. Yep. And, um, yeah, uh, Khan asks if she's going to kill him, and she's like, no, I, I, I can't kill you you're just a boy you're gonna grow up to be a monster but you're just a boy and she's able she's fixed time and she's able to go back to the future and by that i mean her present day yeah she goes back to the bridge everything's fine pike is captain of the ship everything has come back to normal uh she gets approached by a member of department of temporal investigations in her office who was like uh yeah you can't tell anyone about this i want my gadget back thank you for doing my uh my friend's gig bye now and promptly vanishes back to their future uh laan messages kirk who is still lieutenant on a on the farragut and is like um i don't know who you are and Laan is really, really sad about this and starts crying over the love she had, but the watch remains. Wow. 
One minute, 38 seconds. Have you ever had poutine? No. No, I've not. Uh, I've never been entirely certain about poutine and whether the gravy used is vegetarian or can be or anything. Yeah, I, I think it's usually a meat-based gravy. It's I've had it once. It's it's fine. I was also surprised that it had gravy as much as Kirk was. Right. See, it's it's definitely a thing I've heard of. And there was a poutine place in the North Lane. Um, there, there would be. Yeah, I think it died before or during lockdown. Um, but yeah, there were. Yeah, it's an interesting sounding thing. Like, I'd be intrigued to try a veggie version of it, but uh, I've never gone out of my way uh, for it. I did love that this was Canada being Canada rather than Canada pretending to be, be New York or anything. Yeah, that was that was that was very cute with Kirk thinking it's New York and and mm. Trump, and I was like, it's it's Canada. Yeah, fuck it. Look, there's there's Scott Pilgrim and there's the Xavier Mansion. Oh. Because the Xavier Mansion in the X-Men films was filmed okay. in Canada. Canada. Of course. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um not there's Alpha Flight being unscrupulous no. yet again. No. Although maybe Alpha Flight does cause the Third World War in this timeline. I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah. So yeah, um I liked uh James Kirk chess hustler. Yes. That that felt like a very kind of cute Star Trek nerdy kind of way to make money. And I I did appreciate it after he won every game. They they shook hands. It's like, hey, yeah. it's chess, it's all in good fun. Yeah, it's not like, oh no, we've got to break his legs because he keeps winning. No, this is guy playing chess. I did uh, I was thinking when I was watching it about, yeah, of course, because he's actually good at 3D chess. Yeah, you know, we've seen him be good at it. We've read him in in Claremont's, what is it, Debt of Honor? Debt of Honor. Um, that he's good at it. And now, yeah, of course, compared to three dimensional chess, this is going to be kind of like L plate stuff for him. Of like, yeah, yeah this is this is beginner mode chess. I, I thought it was a nice, like, cute moment. Yeah, definitely. I do. The more I see of the guy playing Kirk in Strange New Worlds, the more I like him because you see him in. I've seen him in. We seen him in the, his last in the f last episode of Strange New Worlds, and we've seen him in the musical episode. Yeah, yeah. Paul Wesley, like he wasn't the most exciting person in Vampire Diaries. Uh, similar to David Borneas, when he went evil briefly, you could see he was having fun, and then he kind of loosened up a bit after that. He's definitely grown on me uh, as Kirk, not as. Shatner. Shatner, yeah. yeah. Like he doesn't have he doesn't have the big like theatrical energy that Shatner has. Mm. And I definitely feel he's trying to play like his own version of the character. Whereas like Chris with like Chris Pine, I'm never sure if he's trying to do a Shatner or a Kirk. Yeah. But then of course, you know, like I but also Chris Pine has like his own just natural charm. Not that this guy doesn't. Yeah, I I think with Pine, it's that difficult thing because yeah, he's definitely got the roguish charm, but mm. also yeah, some of it feels like it might be him, him trying to affect uh, a persona of of Shatner's Kirk. But I feel this 
feels more like the cook we're told that in the show mm. who's really really smart and not the cook we're not the stereotype of cook we're gonna get yeah yeah this is the one that will bend the rules but still play within them like he will find his way kind of around the challenges a lot of the time and yeah it's for a show where most of the episode was set in the present day it was still nicely shot and you know it's mostly a two-hander with uh Lan and Kirk and they are both very charming there and that conflict of they both come from divergent timelines I like that as a kind of oh shit yeah one of them is going to be destroyed by the, the actions that they do or don't do here okay it was very it was very obvious when sam gets mentioned mm. that that's going to be the thing that makes kirk go actually your timeline sounds better because my brother's alive my brother who i treat as a piece of shit in our timeline <laughs> well yeah it's it's that thing of okay that is true also the earth in the regular star trek timeline isn't on fire isn't wrecked yeah. you're not at war all the time you know you've got a lot of reasons i guess you needed that one extra one and fine if that's the case fine uh, go at it little bit of side for like the opening i liked the idea that spock is just playing the vulcan harp in his dressing gown at all hours yeah yeah, God, if depending on how thin the walls are, uh, that could be really annoying. Like in Lower Decks, we we saw when um, Boimler and Rutherford get a uh, get their own quarters. Kind of like, oh my God, yeah, actually the noise uh, through the walls is thin enough. And imagine the heart, like the Vulcan uh, music being played every hour of the day. There, um, it drove you mad. I kind of half expected it to turn out that it was a noise complaint from La'an. <laughs> oh, no, because you, you know La'an will just tell him. True. Like, straight straight to his face. Yeah, and yeah, once again, Carol Kane is a joy. She's great fun. I really like Christina Chong in this. Yes. Like, I... It's nice to see the character kind of break down the wall she has in season one, where she's very much like she is the tough, no nonsense. Hmm. She's it's that thing of keeping an amount of that purposeful abrasiveness, but being allowed to be more than just a completely one note character. And we've seen little bits of that with her interactions with Una and how the two of them have a very fun uh, friendship there. And yeah, watching that completely get broken down with Kirk and then the fallout of it all, that's going to affect things. Which we've seen in the, in the musical episode. Yes. Yeah, so that was nice to see. You know, it's, um, it's always good when you get a bit of a, a focus on a character where it's not just a focus on the same character again and again, which as much as I like Discovery you grow tired of Michael after a little while in those first couple of seasons of it all being her episodes. I, I do like that we, we do see more of an ensemble in play. Yeah, it was interesting seeing um, a sliding timescale get mentioned. Like a sliding timeline, which for people that aren't aware of of what this is as a concept, Marvel Comics is one of the best examples of a sliding timeline where... 1963, the X-Men came out, 
but it's not been going monthly and set monthly. It's not like 2000 AD with Judge Dredd, where when it started, we're as many years away from when it started in the fiction as we were in real life. In Marvel, instead, you kind of condense the timeline. So the most characters seem to end up mid-20s, 30s or so and kind of stop at that point. And I, Iron, I think Iron Man was originally, Tony Stark was originally wounded in the Korean War. And then it's, bas- it was, it's basically been pushed back to Vietnam, Gulf War One, Gulf War Two, and now it's just some Middle Eastern con- conflict that that Kurt Busiek made up to basically go here. All the Viet- all the Middle Eastern wars America has been in was over here. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the same with Punisher, and his he was linked to specific wars as a veteran. Uh, there are some that you just can't do that with like magneto where he's always going to be linked to world war ii and the holocaust so you need excuses to go he's long lived for these reasons um captain america even was in the ice for what a decade something 10 20 years 20 years and then now of course you've got the massively jarring he was in world war ii and now was unfrozen I mean, it's the, the terrible thing for us is post 9-11, he'd have been unfrozen. Yeah, God. Same with the X-Men going, OK, yeah, they, they were kids in 1963, but now they would have been kids again, like post 9-11. 9-11. You know, they would have been, God, yeah, like older millennials, maybe younger millennials, Zoomers, who knows? There's been points when they've... Specific, specifically mentioned the AIDS crisis, hmm. um, where where Chuck Austin explicitly said mutants can't catch AIDS, yeah, because they had their own AIDS analog. It's just like some of the stuff doesn't work so much. Hmm. But I, I think this kind of upset a lot of people because, like you know, the introducing a sliding timescale to Star Trek. Well, in a way, you've got your your problem and solution of going, oh yeah, yeah, like time travel happens. Things get messed with. There is always a Khan event yeah. happening in eugenics war. And yeah, as as Sarah said in this, it was supposed to happen in 1992. And she's been here for 30 years trying to stop it from happening. And I, I kind of quite like that as the excuse of why it didn't happen in 1992. Because, you know, we would have seen it. It's a nice time. It's a, it's the same reason why, you have, why, why the time war worked so well at first in New Who mm. in that it was a very nice way to basically go all that previous continuity, time war. Gallif, yeah. we can we could just streamline it. It became more of a problem when the time war just became a bit too overwhelming to the show's continuity and so on and so forth. Um but I I do have one slight complaint. Yeah. Um and that's really much how the characters react to time travel in here, then the character, like say how time travel gets treated in the original show where no one knows how the past works Hmm. in the era of TOS. Like you have like voyage home, like voyage home where they don't know how the eighties work. Yeah. Or the times in like 
City at the Edge of Forever, which I've seen, but not for the show, where Kirk and Spock are just like, okay, 1940s, how does any of this work? Mm. Like, I, I think that we've had one episode, like, I think it's the Gangster Planet, where we see Kirk not know how to drive a car. Whereas here, like, Kirk's like, oh, yeah, I can drive a car. I can Grand Theft Auto this bad boy. I mean, he has some. He has a rough start with it. Yeah. But uh, but gets there eventually. Oh, and yeah, one other thing, um, which I think my partner appreciated with this is... Uh, Sarah is played by uh, Mary from the CW's Rain, a completely not historically accurate historical drama through the lens of the CW, which was very stupid. I think I saw a season of it, and yeah, like it's it's got some ludicrous anachronistic fashion. The music is all doing the Bridgerton thing of remixing present day hits in slightly historical ways. And it's, it's so very CW and it was weird seeing her like that. It's like, okay, this is a person with some importance then, like with something to do um, to just pop up and help them out. And it's like, yep. Yeah, of course she's the one that they were looking for. And yet your partner draws the line at Blake 7. I mean, there's there's a certain caliber of trash, you know? <laughs> it's it's like, um, you know, re-watching the old interview of a vampire film or anything like that. That is not a good film, but it's still, it's still entertaining. So, okay, yeah. all right. I'll let it slide. Yeah, but... Um, yeah, so this was this was an entertaining bit of time travel. So, so as a as an entertaining time unit of Trek, mm. how do you think this ranks on the big list? Yeah, I'm trying to see what what other what comparable things we've got. So in place number seventeen, we've got the musical, mm. uh, Subspace Rhapsody, and that was that was very good fun. Like, it deals with a bunch of fallout of this. This feels a little more self-contained in that subspace deals with a lot of the personal drama that was going on. But it was a really fun musical. I think it's probably better than this. Hopping down. I see that was 17. At spot 27. So 10 down from there, we've got Two Vix, a classic Voyager episode. Hugo Award-winning Two Vix. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which yeah was very silly, but um, but entertaining. Would you say? Would you put this better or worse than? I I might have to say that Tuvix is better than this. Fair, fair, okay. Uh, I mean, directly under that, we've got uh, Brad Dourif in all his lizard glory in uh, in Meld, and it's good. I think. I don't know. I, I think while it's an entertaining two-hander between Tuvok and Lizardman Brad Dourif, I think the charm of this might be a bit better yeah. than that. Like it's it's not quite the Star Trek does Hannibal that I hoped with Meld. But no, I I I, I think I agree. Hmm. It's okay, so that would put this at the new number twenty-eight. Which yeah, feels like a good place. Okay, so with that, we have another casual trek done. 
and we've explored time and next time we've got something a bit special um as we've got a guest star we will our secondest ever guest star our, our, our secondest ever guest star and we will be talking about uh trills so yeah start getting a sharpie and putting dots all over your face as uh yeah in anticipation of a trill episode and so charlie where can people find you oh online i guess i i've been doing far less than i intended to do online but uh skyshark.itch.io for my comics and rpg supplements i keep meaning to do, there's a 24-word RPG jam, and I've got a vague Assassin's Creed-themed idea, so I might have something up soon relating to that. And, yeah, over on faketales.com, where I've been talking about the indie RPGs I've read in the last year, I've finished all 232 role-playing books that I'd kick-started since 2013, which is a sign of a problem, but also... A fun accomplishment to have done. Uh, I'll be posting December's updates on that. And my overall, was this worth it? Uh, kind of post soon enough on there. Um, I also put the show notes from Casual Trek up there when I remember. Uh, how about you, Mars? Uh, you can find me on ma.readlobato.wordpress.com, where I've also not been as prolific as I, will, I would have liked. Um, I did do reviews of the foot of the free david tennant doctor who specials of which i'm pretty proud of oh they were a joy to read uh a review on church of ruby road is forthcoming but life has been a lot and hopefully i am trying trying to at least update the blog on a weekly basis nice but then again i also i i've been saying i'm gonna go back to the gym about once a day all year yeah We'll, we'll see updates when we see updates. Yep. Casual Trek itself has an online presence. We are on Blue Sky as Casual Trek. Uh, we are on the Nerd and Tie forums, again, when we remember to be. That's where I'll be posting a link to the big list, released for public version of the big list, so people can follow along and see uh, what terrible reminders we've set ourselves about what each episode is about. Um and on Kofi, where you can throw us some gold press latinum, uh, like like our good friend Cheryl, who did so very recently. So um, yeah, go do that. And also, while you're doing that, why not go on and do a Starfleet, either now or in the past or in the future? Live long and have a jelly baby. And next week. Time loops. No, no, not going to happen. Not again. No, I, no. I ruined it. I ruined it. You've been listening to Casual Trek by Charlie Etheridge Nunn and Miles Rizabato. Music by Alfred Etheridge Nunn. Casual Trek's part of the Nerd and Time Network. And if you want to support us monetarily because you love what we do that much, you can now do that by going to coffee and looking up casual track. There's a link in the show notes. What's next? I don't know.